Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Well, we have some interesting stories uh, tonight about odor and smelling, but first... The stink around scientific publishing's paywalls has been heating up lately, and I'm going to bring you a couple of uh, a couple of updates. But first, a personal anecdote. Back when I started broadcasting, 1993, if you can believe it, there were libraries, actual physical libraries with physical medical journals, and also internet access to articles in the larger journals. I made great use of our local hospital's medical library in the early years of uh, what was then called Dominican Dialogue. Over time, things changed, like they do. Accessing medical articles became more and more expensive as massive publishing entities like LCVA, bought up the rights to the scientific journals and began to sell the articles for, well, about 30 to $40 a piece. Independent researchers and journalists like myself were priced out of the market. Those affiliated with large institutions in the United States or other first world countries still had access, but it furthered along the consolidation of science. And, you know, Some of the most creative people in science are probably outside of the mainstream because creativity and doing what the guy who's stupider than you but higher in the hierarchy says to do are incompatible qualities. So you really maybe don't want to shut those people out. Just my opinion. Most of the research funded of this research, by the way, that was hiding behind firewalls was funded by public money, tax dollars, but no longer freely available to the people who helped pay for it. Today, I'll be discussing two recent reports that highlight the issue from several different perspectives. But first, I want to comment on what happened to the firewall during the early days of the COVID pandemic. This is one of those COVID bonuses, like, uh, slowing down and noticing that you actually live in a place and seeing what it looks like during the day. Like Jericho, the walls came tumbling down, at least so far as SARS-CoV-2 was concerned. Science papers were freely shared. It was wonderful to have such broad access. And as my regular listeners know, I dove in headfirst and brought you the best and most current info. I and some friends actually formed a private little task force to just think about and talk about the challenges and the possibilities uh, of how we were going to meet this potentially existential threat. Well, the paywalls never really went away, uh, particularly for stuff outside of COVID, as this latest report illustrates. A landmark court case in which two major academic publishers sued the popular website ResearchGate for hosting 50 of their copyrighted papers has come to a close. 
Both sides say they will appeal. The court in Munich, Germany, has not only prohibited ResearchGate from hosting the papers, but also ruled that it is responsible for copyright infringing content uploaded on its platform. ResearchGate's defense, well, we'll come to that in a moment. Now, this is not... uh, and this is not the final word here. Neither side really emerged as a clear win- winner. But uh, the claims are interesting. So let's get into that a little bit. El Civier, which is based in Amsterdam, and the American Chemical Society in Washington, D.C., filed the lawsuits against, research- against ResearchGate in a regional court in Munich in 2017, alleging that the site had made copyrighted material freely available. ResearchGate said it could not be held responsible for the content, which was uploaded by the authors. That sort of sounds um, a little bit like the Facebook defense. We are pleased with the verdict, said a spokesperson for the Coalition for Responsible Sharing, a group of publishers, including, of course, Elsevier and the ACS, which formed in 2017, just in time to file a lawsuit. The clear aim of the legal action was to clarify the responsibilities of ResearchGate for the content that it it illicitly distributes on its site. On the other hand, ResearchGate said, we believe that the outputs of scientific research, the majority of which is funded by public money, should be shared as openly as possible, and we'll continue to support researchers in sharing their work easily and legally. They add, According to ResearchGate, they say it's up to the publishers to work with the platforms to remove uploaded content. Oh, rather in the way that we notify Google or Twitter that something is obscene or unacceptable. I can even do that on Pinterest. Well, maybe that's what they're saying. But uh, in the years since this case was first brought, they introduced software that could help prevent the sharing of copyrighted material. Uh, and uh, according to ResearchGate, we've built a fully compliant solution and are pleased that Elsevier and ACS are using it. But ResearchGate was founded back in 2008. It has had a complicated relationship because the people doing the uploading and sharing of document are the authors, who you would think would have some right to their work. This includes their published research. Now, authors do get a... Uh, reprint right when they publish something and they can distribute reprints. And one of the ways that I got around that paywall was to contact the researcher and ask for a reprint. Now that, of course, introduced a, a bit of a delay, but in general, the researchers were happy to send an inquiring mind like my own a, a reprint of their article that got published in the journal that made them very proud that it got published. Well, Publishers, publishers, besides initiating legal action, have been sending takedown notices to ResearchGate for years, demanding that it remove paywalled articles. And the Munich lawsuit focused on 50 articles. The court ruled that the uploaded articles breached the publisher's copyrights. But uh, the implications for any article other than the 50 are unclear, and it really isn't clear whether this court's judgment will... Uh, go through on appeal. Remember, this is all happening in journal in uh, Germany. But far from being a blocking order, it sort of means that any content that is published could be subject to a new lawsuit, which is going to have a chilling effect on people uploading stuff to the site. Uh, as far as damages are concerned, the court rejected that. They said that 
uh, Elsevier did not have sufficient evidence to show that the standard copyright licensing agreements, which typically are only signed by the paper's corresponding author, in other words, a representative, prove that all authors agree to transfer ownership to the publisher. Ah, that we call a loophole. The open access movement uh, is starting to really grow. This The academic world has noticed that this paywall is a bad idea, and many of the funders uh, have uh, pushed back hard and, of course, look look for the money. Uh, but while Elsevier and ACS have been locked in this legal battle, other big publishers like Springer, Nature, and Wiley have partnered with the platform to enable it to share published papers. And uh, this is, in the EU, there's a difference in copyright law between us and them, and I'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But basically, in pretty much going after Facebook, the EU last year put legislation into effect that makes content sharing platforms responsible for the content uploaded by their users. And this, unfortunately, has had reverberations in the scientific world. Uh, Jarvis says that it's, uh, sorry, ResearchGate says it's not subject to these rules because of the nature of their platform. They have a tool which matches rights information from publishers to papers published during the uploading process and prevents researchers from posting content they're not permitted to share. So they, they basically fixed their process after they got sued. But what happens in Germany doesn't necessarily happen in the United States. And ResearchGate potentially has a much stronger case in U.S. because their decisions can actually hinge on this concept called fair use rather than copyright law. The public interest argument is something that would be way stronger in the United States than it is in Germany. And ResearchGate can argue that copyrighted papers should be made available on its platform for the sake of freedom of access to knowledge. Yeah. Well, ResearchGate, as I said, used what I'll call the Facebook defense in their lawsuit and also makes the argument that science wants to be free, which I completely agree with. Sci-Hub, however, based in Eastern Europe uh, uh, and founded by a woman named Alexandra uh, Elbakian, simply said, hmm, bad rule, stupid idea, let's just break it and began posting pirated and they began posting pirated copies of science papers almost a decade ago and honestly uh, i'm very grateful and a lot of people all over the world are likewise very grateful uh, they a recent study however shows that the uh, shows who exactly is using this mm, pirate site for science and by the way it's big 20 Five million downloads per month, and someone ran some stats on the uh, looking at who's doing the downloading and rank them according to how many downloads they do. Well, not too surprising. China actually outstripped all of the rest. In fact, outstripped the rest of the top 10 countries combined because, hey, why pay for something if you don't have to? An attitude, by the way, that I kind of share in this case. The United States, let's see, 
uh, China had 25 million downloads, so I misstated. That's in one month. Uh, The total number of downloads is probably double that, but I don't have a figure. Uh, The United States all by itself downloaded 9.3 million. And uh, it's not true. It says the it says the founder Alexandra Elbakian that uh, Sci-Hub is of no use in the United States because universities have money to pay for the subscriptions. Because guess what? Not everybody works who want, who's interested in science works for a university. The data also suggests that research in countries whose universities simply don't have the resources to pay for these subscriptions, and they're literally thousands tens of thousands of dollars in, in the case of some of these uh, journals, a year. Oh, sure, a big university has that money, but not a university in Azerbaijan or in South America. Many nations with fewer scientific resources are in that top 20. Uh, Brazil, 2.8 million downloads. Mexico, 750,000. Uh, Colombia, 375,000. Latin America is not a region where scientists enjoy competitive remuneration compared with other regions. In other words, professors don't get paid well in Latin America, and most of the institutions lack the resources to pay for these subscription-based services. And why are we shutting out an entire subcontinent out of science, especially given the number of diseases down there, uh, Zika anyone, who uh, have you know, profound implications for the species, particularly in an era of global warming where we can expect those mosquitoes to travel north. And hey, we're the next uh, one in line for that. So the data's not great, all right? Many of this data comes from uh, not only downloads from Sci-Hub, but also through virtual private networks and mirror sites, which uh, have cropped up in areas where Sci-Hub is banned, mirror sites have cropped up. Virtual private networks can circumvent the ban. That happens a lot in the UK. And this is probably why the Seychelles uh, occasionally appears among the top 20 countries of downloads. This is a tiny island nation that besides uh, necessarily maybe being a money hub for offshore investments, although I don't know that for a fact, Uh, Many small, tiny tiny island nations do that, but they host several popular international virtual private network services, and so the downloads appear to be coming from there. Uh, With 1.8 million downloads, India's in uh, fifth place on the list, and it also has the second highest number of individual users. Let's be a little scientific. Uh, You can't really just look at the label on where it's coming from. You could, for example, take a year of data and look at the academic calendars. For example, South America takes holiday in January and February. That's their summer vacation. So we should see a drop in the downloads from Sci-Hub during those months, said researcher Juan Pablo Alperan, who is apparently uh, responsible for creating some of this data. But Sci-Hub is definitely filled filling a need in many parts of the world. And we need to think about, you know, information wants to be free. Science needs to be free. We, we shoot ourselves in the foot when we don't allow the free transfer of information. And yeah, I, I mean that. If we could have done even a better job information sharing 
early on. And let's let's vow to do better job of information sharing early on the next time a mysterious disease crops up. Let's have a uh, let's have what they have in the airline industry, a no blame policy where you don't shoot the messenger who says, hmm, something may be brewing here. We all need to be alert and be ready to deal and to do a better job and learn from this situation because as we as a species move into these wilderness areas and and blur that interface between the wild and the urban we are going to see crossover diseases at higher and higher levels and we have to be prepared to find them early i think that's the lesson right speaking of finding things early uh pivoting to a recent study that just came out in uh, scientific advances this was done in canada a large-scale testing campaign using rapid antigen tests for COVID. This was a big, big study. Uh, 3,000, sorry, 322,000 rapid tests conducted at 73 workplaces in Canada. This was a -a twice-a-week testing program in lots of Canadian companies, as small as 10 as uh, as small as 100 employees and as great as 10,000 employees, and it used the rapid antigen tests, which, just to remind you, are identifying proteins on the virus surface, just like a rapid strep test does, uh, rather than looking at RNA, which is what the PCR tests do. They take longer. A rapid test works really well, and the testing yielded 604 positives, 473 of those were confirmed by PCR to be true positives. And so if you do the math, only one in 4,300 rapid test results was confirmed by PCR as a false positive. So yes, that's going to take some people out of work, but it's not enough distributed over that many tests to really disrupt things. Somebody gets free sick leave for a couple of days until their PCR comes back negative, This is really, really not a big deal for most businesses, and it will drastically reduce the amount of of workplace contamination and hotspots and super spreader events. And that's one of the things that we are really, really needing to look carefully at avoiding. We've got some email to talk about, so let's get... Uh, let's get on with it. This one came from Andrew in Aptos. The question is when to start estrogen? When or what symptoms should trigger women to investigate starting estrogen supplementation? Well, Andrew, there are a lot of symptoms that can go along with drops in estrogen. And I want to, first of all, emphasize that they are quite various because people are different in terms of of how they respond. I also want to emphasize that as women move, or maybe I should say persons with ovaries move through their transition, that transition can involve either just a sharp drop in the output of estrogen, or it can involve what I call the, your your car needs a tune-up phenomenon where back in the old days, I'm dating myself, I know, but everybody knows I'm old anyway, 
you sit at the red light and your car is idling and then suddenly it starts to sputter and choke and seems like it's going to stall and then it'll rev and either you've revved it or it's revved itself. But the point is, it's not coordinating itself very well. And what we see in many people with ovaries is that the ovaries will become resistant to the signals coming from the brain, from the pituitary, and they won't respond and produce estrogen. And then the signal gets louder and louder, and they'll suddenly rev and produce a lot of estrogen. And so it's it's a bumpy ride for some people. People with ovaries who have a lot of extra body fat actually have kind of a second ovary because the body fat produces a compound called estrone, and that estrone is helpful to smooth these curves and make menopause less symptomatic. Now, I will point out that as men develop belly fat, uh, particularly the dad bod with the with the sort of breasts, that's an indication that they are producing estrone, and that's causing them to get some breast development. So it is an indicator, of course, that the estrogen-testosterone balance in males is going off. But back to the people with ovaries, uh, word finding is probably one of the earliest things, and it will go, it often will come and go, where you just are, have that tip-of-the-tongue phenomenon And it can be very frustrating, particularly since many people with ovaries are very, very uh, articulate and are used to being able to find that right word, so it's annoying. Another big one very early is insomnia, waking up hot in the middle of the night or waking up with a pounding heartbeat or just not being able to sleep as deeply or as well as previously. There are also often changes in skin texture Uh, particularly moisture of both the facial skin, the hair, and also the internal tissues. So dry vaginas, irritation with sexual intercourse. These are uh, dry eyes, in fact. These are all other symptoms. And, of course, irregular menses. And uh, when should you start uh, thinking about it with irregular periods is if you are older than 48 and you have a family history of osteoporosis. Because if there, is a natu- if there is a familial tendency towards osteoporosis, what we're going to see is a really substantial, rapid loss of bone mass in the first three years after menopause. And to the extent that your estrogens go up and then, and then plummet and stay low for weeks and then go up again, during those weeks that it's low, you've really altered the ratio of bone breakdown to bone buildup. And if that goes on for, say, five years, a lot of bone is is lost while the women are still having periods. And that's an important, important thing to be aware of. Women, women who have had early hysterectomies are especially at risk for this because they may not get those cues that their bodies, especially if their ovaries are removed, they went to menopause when their ovaries were removed uh, at that moment. And that's a rapid change and you do get a rapid drop. Let's go to Shaul in Israel, who's who's back with uh, asking opinions on several topics. Uh, Shaul's a regular uh, contributor to this program, and so let's go with Shaul's questions. Is it true that we need to pause between meals for at least three hours for good health? 
Well, Shaw, I'm not sure about the three-hour figure. The The fact is that it takes most of us uh, at least 45 to 75 minutes to empty our stomach. And you definitely want to allow for stomach emptying between meals and maybe give a little bit more time for the first phase of the, for the second phase, I should say, of the laundry cycle uh, that's preparing food to be in a state where it can be absorbed into the bloodstream, which is to say when it gets into the upper small intestine, the duodenum, and gets a big squirt of enzymes from the pancreas and bile from the gallbladder. And those are important steps in the processing. And once it gets a little further down the line, and so three hours is a good bet for that, it's safe to eat more, although you have to consider whether or not you actually need to. And I'll leave it at that. Maintaining a healthy body weight is good. Uh, Collapsing your eating down to eight hours, the so-called fasting mimicking diet is probably fine, but you shouldn't collapse collapse all of your eating down to four hours. That's a really important factor. Two meals a day within the same eight hours, sure, at either end. It's a little bit difficult the way our life is structured and scheduled, but hey, there's another COVID bonus. Our lives are so much less structured by break time than they used to be that many of us can improve our timing. Next question from Shaw. Sleep expert Professor Matthew Walker, director of UC Berkeley's Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab, recommends decaffeinated coffee for better sleep and not coffee. He claims that from a health point of view, they are almost the same. I totally agree with that. The caffeine, of course, does increase blood flow to the brain. It's a little bit uh, alerting. And so there is some cognitive benefit from caffeine that, of course, you won't get from decaffeinated coffee. But from the standpoint of what really makes coffee healthy, which is the the bioflavonoids and the antioxidants that are contained in the uh, coffee bean, those are, in fact, still present in either form. Our last question from Shal is, uh, any help for improving the number of times I go pee at night? Yes, I drink, this, although I drink the same amount of fluids every day and stop drinking at 2 p.m., still the number of times per night changes ranging from 1 through 6. And Shal, that's a very, very interesting fact that you're giving me there. And so I have thought, a couple of thoughts. I think that something you're eating is acting as a bladder irritant. And one possibility, I'm assuming equal volume, you said that. So I'm I, one possibility is the foods that you would want to avoid if you had interstitial cystitis or IS. You can look those up, but off the top of my head, one of them is, so hello, coffee, and that would include decaf. Um, another is pretty much vinegars, other acidy foods like uh, oranges, uh, orange juice, hot spices. And as I said, there's a number of other lists. You can search interstitial cystitis to get it, uh, to get all the other ones I'm leaving out. But these are known bladder irritants. And it may be that you're just eating those some of the time, and that's when you get your issue with six uh, six in a night, which sounds just dreadful. I'm hope, I hope you're able to get back to sleep. 
Another way that that could be happening is if you actually have food sensitivity. I talk about that a lot where people actually have had at some point in their life a leaky gut and they get antibodies against the a particular food and those antibodies and antigen complexes act as an irritant in the bladder. Or uh, And also I would look for days that you get both heartburn and uh, increased urination. That would be a real strong flag that what you're eating, uh, that you have IgG to it because the you'll get that increased reflux if that's the case in many cases. So how can you sort this out? Because this is an effect that is delayed by hours and it may even be what you, it may even be delayed by as much as 24 hours. But here's a good strategy. Take, start with taking a photo of your meals. And when you have a really bad night where you're up six times, the following morning, sit down and go through the last 24 hours of photos and note what you ate. And if you do, you know, make a list. And then the next time it happens, do it again and make another list and so on. And after four or five repetitions, you may discover that it's something like peanuts or some seemingly innocuous food. Then you try taking that out of the mix and seeing whether or not that's the culprit and you see improvement. It's a little bit tedious, but I will tell you, I have people do this all the time, and the being able to take a photo of your food is invaluable because you don't have to stop and write it down. It's a very, very small activity or intervention, and it works really well at helping you sort these things out. This one comes from Cheryl. Osteoporosis medications. I'm postmenopausal, had an estrogen-positive breast cancer six years ago, and have osteoporosis. What medication do you recommend? The side effects of all I've read about are off-putting. Well, Cheryl, since you're postmenopausal, you've already been through all of the side effects for this medication, and it's called Evista. It is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and it is very effective at treating osteoporosis and preventing progression, which is probably the the biggest one. As you know, the bisphosphonates, which are drugs that cross-link the bones and make it hard for the bone breakdown cells to break them down, have some substantial side effects. You're well aware of them. I think that they have their place in severe osteoporosis, particularly if a person has a high risk of fracture, for example, a T-score of four, where you can break your hip just standing up and pivoting on one leg, something that we do every day without thinking about it. But for people who are in that greater than 2.5 to 3.5 range, where, or sorry, less than 2.5 to 3.5, to 3.5, so they have technically got osteoporosis, but it's not severe, using something like Evista may be a very good strategy. I've discussed other agents on this program. It's a common pro- a common question. But I suggest you look into uh, raloxifene or Avista, as I think that might do be just the trick for you. And I mentioned we were going to talk about smelling, and here we go. In uh, odor disease diagnostics, we've been seeing a battle brewing between cybernetic and biological platforms. Here are a couple of reports from the front of the detection race. Headline, 
American Chemical Society, E-Nos, could someday diagnose Parkinson's disease by smelling skin. Scientists have been trying to build devices that could diagnose Parkinson's through the odor compounds on the skin. Researchers reporting in ACS Omega, a trade journal for the American Chemical Society, have developed a portable, artificially intelligent olfactory system, or ENOS, that could someday diagnose the disease in a doctor's office. Now, Parkinson's disease, as you know, causes motor symptoms, tremors, rigidity, difficulty walking, and also depression and dementia. And those, there's no cure, but early diagnosis and treatment, particularly I'll add it with a functional medicine doctor, can improve one's quality of life, relieve symptoms, and prolong survival. However, the disease isn't usually identified until late. People have developed movement and motor symptoms, and by then they've already lost neurons, irreversible neuron loss, that is. But... Scientists recently discovered that people with Parkinson's secrete increased sebum, the oily, waxy substance that's produced by your sebaceous glands, along with increased production of yeast, enzymes, and hormones, and you get a certain odor. Uh, Now, there was an anecdote that I shared with you a few years ago about a nurse in uh, England who diagnosed her husband's Parkinson's disease early because he just started smelling different. And although human supersmellers are very rare, Scientists have used gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, to analyze odor compounds in the sebum of people with Parkinson's disease. But these are big, bulky, slow instruments, plus they're expensive. So the researchers highlighted in this article wanted to produce something that was portable, inexpensive, that would be useful for what we call point-of-care testing, exactly that rapid testing I was talking about for COVID at a business site. So they researched and developed an e-nose combining gas chromatography with something called a surface acoustic wave sensor, which measures gaseous compounds through their interaction with a sound wave. Well, that's interesting. The gas interacts with the sound wave. It creates a pattern. And then using machine learning algorithms, they were able to teach it to identify Parkinson's disease. They started out with sebum samples from 31 Parkinson's patients and 32 healthy controls by swapping their backs with gauze. And then they analyzed the volatile compounds uh, using gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. And they identified three odor compounds, octanol, hexyl acetate, and perylic aldehyde that were different between the two groups. So that's what they used to build their model for Parkinson's disease diagnosis. Then They analyzed sebum from an additional 12 patients with Parkinson's and 12 healthy controls, and they found that the model had an accuracy of 70.8% in predicting uh, Parkinson's disease. Sensitivity was high at uh, 91.7%, but specificity was only 50%, so there were a high rate of false positives. But when they threw in their machine learning algorithms and let them run for a while, they were able to approve that by about uh, 12%. So they got it up to 79.2% accuracy. But before it's really ready for prime time, it needs to be tested on a broad variety of people, males and females, different racial and ethnic and dietary variations, because all of these probably are a factor in some of what's going on with the smell here. Still, a promising idea, and one that might be implied, uh, maybe that information could be applied not to a point-of-service device, 
but maybe a point of service entity. So flies, worms, and bees are being researched as approaches to identify illness using smell. Now, dogs, of course, are the champions here. They can smell things at one part in a trillion. That's basically a single drop in a pond the size of 20 Olympic swimming pools. Wow. Dogs, of course, are being used in airports all over the world to sniff out drugs, the uh, track missing people. But they can also detect illnesses, including cancer, malaria, Parkinson's disease, and COVID-19. In a study published in 2019, for example, trained dogs were able 97% of the time to identify blood samples taken from patients with lung cancer accurately. And a group of researchers in Germany recently trained dogs to pick out saliva samples collected from those infected with SARS-CoV-2 from uh, uninfected samples, and they had a success rate of 94% which is excellent. We don't, they don't give us false positives here, but still, dogs, unfortunately, are complicated. You've got to pay the trainers. They get tired. They get bored. Boredom's, you know, a thing in higher animals. And not all dogs are up to it. You know, only about half the dogs are able to get to the point where they are useful. So we, they're not a practical answer here, but maybe fruit flies, right? So There's also a nematode worm and maybe bees. I'll tell you all about all three over the next minute or two. Let's start with defining the problem. At the moment, only four cancers, the breast, the cervix, the colon, and the rectum, and sometimes the prostate are screened routinely. And that only in places that it can afford it and in people who have access and who aren't locked down in the middle of a global pandemic. We're going to see a big bump in cancer over the next uh, year because of all those cases that weren't diagnosed early and are now being diagnosed a little bit later. But there are many unscreened for tumors that we can't test for uh, where early detection is vital. Cancer of the pancreas, stomach cancer, esophagus, to name a few. If we could find animal-based diagnostics, we could extend the screening tests available, and it could actually work. So fruit flies smell things using their antenna. And a doctor in Germany, Giovanni Galizia, has genetically modified his fruit flies so that when they detect odiferous molecules, the resulting brain activity generates a fluorescence under a microscope. The exact pattern of the fluorescence depends on what the fly is smelling. Is that wild? So with the help of machine learning and a microscope, Dr. Galizia can recognize the patterns. That It's like a gas chromatography pattern, but it's generated in a insect brain, and he was able to show that he could I, he could show which ones, uh, which odors were coming from cancerous cell lines. He could tell the difference now between different types of breast cancer. But he's using cancer cells grown in a dish, so he has to now transfer what he's doing to try to detect cancer in urine. Uh, he's really looking to dispense with fruit flies and maybe that electronic nose that we were talking about or even a sensor on a silicone chip could be trained to recognize the particular pattern. So maybe we should put the uh, people in China who are working on the e-nose together with this guy in Germany and see what they come up with. But then there's detection by worm. This relies on whole living organisms, but it's just 
such a news that's weird, okay? C. Uh, elegans, which is a nematode and is one of the most commonly used research tools because it is a very big chromosome that's easy to see. And it's been, everybody has done research on C. elegans, who's anybody in the genetics world as part of their training. Well, it turns out that C. elegans can distinguish between the urine of people who have cancer and those who don't. Let's see. Her, I'm sorry, I'm going to murder this name. Hirotu Takai, uh, Takaiki in uh, Kyushu University in Japan has shown that the worms tend to crawl toward urine from cancer patients and are repelled by urine from healthy people. He discovered this uh, in 2015, and the following year, guess what? He founded a company. The Hirotsu Bioscience Company has three test centers around Japan, and in each of these, robots drop little spots of urine onto the edges of Petri dishes, and then they add clusters of worms at the center. This process is repeated dozens of times per patient, and then they average the result. If most of the worms crawl towards the urine, then the patient in question is likely to have one of at least 15 different types of cancer, although Dr. Hirotsu at this point cannot say which one. Coupling the, this urine worm test, maybe with uh, additional testing of the urine looking for RNA of tumors, might be able to narrow it down to a system. It's not ready for prime time yet, but you've got to admit, uh, dropping worms into a Petri dish and seeing which way they crawl has a, a kind of, you know, checking the enthrals quality to it as a prognostic tool. Okay. Then we come to bees, okay? Good reason to keep bees going. This is actually a Pavlovian method. You'll remember that Dr. Pavlov uh, would ring a bell just before feeding the dogs, and he then noticed that the dogs were salivating when they heard the bell. So he later on uh, discovered that he could condition the dogs to salivate from the sound of the bell with no smell of food or food visible to them. I heard a really interesting story about uh, dogs and uh, about Pavlov's dogs. Uh, I'm going to digress and just say that there was a flood in uh, in his laboratory at one point. The river overflowed and the dogs almost drowned. And after that, these highly trained animals with all of this conditioning forgot everything. The dogs had serious PTSD from their near drowning incident and lost all of their training. Fascinating. Getting back to the bees, they set a sugar water uh, offering next to uh, SARS-CoV-2 infected saliva samples. They put they don't mix them; they just put them next to each other. And the bees learn because they they smell the sugar. They extend their proboscis and you know stick their little proboscis out like they're going to suck the sugar. And after a while, just like the dogs with the bell they began to stick their proboscis out when they smelled COVID, even when no sugar water was around. So it's a, it, the, there's, of course, a company doing this, right? Insect Sense, a Dutch firm, would be the Dutch, um, are developing this approach. Uh, they're going to team with local beekeepers to provide armies of bees. They've got training machines, one of which can train more than 100 bees a day. They've got people in Zimbabwe and India who are interested in training the bees as well. And, of course, that's nice to have a SARS test, but what if they can also be trained to detect cancers? Well, they probably can be. 
I know the dogs can certainly do it with prostate cancer. Why not train bees to detect various cancers in urine? It's essentially what we're doing biochemically is we're looking for compounds, which apparently have an odor that are only found in certain clinical situations to wit certain cancers or Parkinson's disease, right? Or infected with COVID. Uh, The sky's the limit here on these animal noses and their ability to uh, provide us with a different diagnostic tool. And it's, you know, deja vu all over again, because back in the time of Hippocrates, ever since then, doctors have been encouraged to use their noses to assist diagnosis. I was taught to recognize the smell of diabetic ketoacidosis by sniffing the patient's breath. There's a particular smell to kidney failure. There's a particular smell to liver failure. And these things are there in the human brain with our not-so-great smell apparatus compared to the dogs. We still have this magical ability to perform uh, essentially gas chromatography all by ourselves. Uh, There's a wonderful book, if you're interested in this topic, called The Emperor of Scent, that I highly recommend. It's just wild news of the weird, and uh, I think you'd enjoy it. All right. Living robots can now reproduce. Another seriously news of the weird. A team of scientists has developed the world's first living robots, and they say that their tiny creations can actually self-replicate. First unveiled last year, the so-called xenobots measure about four one-hundredths of an inch across, and are assembled from stem cells extracted from frog embryos. They have no digestive system or neurons, and they naturally collapse after about two weeks. So stem cell critters, if you will. But these spherical bots can move. They use hair-like projections called cilia. They, When they put them into Petri dishes with salt water and some frog embryo cells, the robot's swept the frog embryo cells into little piles. And those piles then glommed together to become new xenopots that then began to move about. The baby bots then gathered more loose cells, which in turn started to move. And they got up to two new generations of bots that could be produced. Each new generation was smaller than its predecessor, and eventually they lost their ability to swim and self-replicate. The programming must have run down. They... um, then designed a new xenopod that's got a C-shape, looks just like Pac-Man. It's better suited for gathering up loose cells. And these Pac-Man bots were an improvement. They could produce and continue to produce for up for four generations. This is cool, but it also kind of goes back to the ancient primordial sea and how we got multicellularity in the first place. Because, you know, first you've got to have... Uh, uh, first, you've got to have a single cell. And nowadays, all the multiple cellular things, with the exception of, you could say, certain bacterial mats, are eukaryotic. Is this an intrinsic property of all life, including bacterial life, uh, forming clumps? Maybe these xenobots could be used to collect microplastic in the oceans, or maybe we could send them out literally to go Pac-Man cholesterol from the artery walls. And who knows, but it's certainly intrinsically wonderful to think about. And while we're on the subject of smell and interesting aspects of smell, all parents, in fact, anyone who's ever held a baby knows that wonderful new baby smell. 
It's just a nice, unique aroma. It, you smell at the top end, not the bottom end, to observe it. But anyway, you probably knew that. However, scientists studying this found that it evokes very different reactions in mothers and fathers, triggering aggression in women, but blocking aggression in men. And so they they exposed a group of 130 people. So this wasn't even mothers and fathers. They weren't the parents smelling their own baby. They uh, exposed half of the 130 people to a molecule that's called hexadecanol, which is found in large quantities in baby scalps. It's responsible for that smell. And the other half got a control substance. And then they, they were asked to play a computer game. And in this game, they had the option to blast a fellow player with unpleasant noises and varying degrees of intensity. Kind of reminds me of that uh, electrical shock experiment from so many years ago. But anyway, getting back to this study, the women who were exposed to the hexadecanol consistently opted for the most aggressive, loud noises. In contrast, the men chose softer noises. The exposed men chose softer noises than the men who hadn't been exposed. Now, obviously, these different reactions could have an evolutionary explanation. In the animal kingdom, male aggression translates many times into aggression towards newborns. Meanwhile, female aggression usually translates into defending offspring. Angry mother bear, anyone? Yes, exactly. So a fascinating thought. Smell. We're going to exit for a while and talk about a couple of other things for the remainder of our hour. Let's go on to recent trends in colon cancer. It's showing up much earlier in younger people. Rates of cancers in people under 50 have rocketed, particularly colon cancers. Those born around 1990 have twice the risk for colon cancer um, than those born 40 years earlier and four times the risk for rectal cancer as those born 40 years earlier. Those are really amazing statistics. That's a huge bump. And why is this? Well, going back and looking at data from a almost 100,000-person female registry of nurses who took part in the Nurses' Health Study from 1991 to 2015, uh, they found maybe a clue. Women who consumed less than one weekly eight-ounce serving of soft drinks, sports drinks, or sweetened teas sugar-sweetened, had half the relative risk of developing colorectal cancer compared with those who averaged two or more servings. Each additional sugary drink per week equated to a 16% increase in risk. Now, one possible factor for this may be weight gains. Uh, Insulin resistance is known to play an important role in the development of this cancer in younger adults, and we know that since 1990, we have been seeing much more insulin resistant in younger and younger people. Type 2 diabetes in people under the age of 30 just didn't exist when I was training in medicine, and that was in the late 1980s. Something really shifted in the 90s, and possibly it's high fructose corn syrup. Possibly it's the fact that all of those sugary soft drinks are stored in plastics, and we know that There's a ton of stuff that leaches into beverages from plastic, even with just 25 hours of dwell time. And you know your Coca-Cola in bottles or whatever you're drinking, even your clear uh, beverage, your 
soda water. If it's plastic, even soda water water is going to leach it. So that's an alternative. Although, as I said, they were differentiating. I think that the the survey isn't sufficiently sensitive to have been able to detect the difference here. So we've got just a couple of minutes left, so we're going to go to just a couple of quick stories that I think you'll find interesting. Let's start with proton pump inhibitor use and gastric cancer. A large study recently showed an association between long-term PPI use and new gastric cancer. Regular listeners know I've been jumping on the uh, jumping on the soapbox to rail against long-term proton pump inhibitor use for just about ever because of the implications with osteoporosis and uh, neuropathy and potentially even uh, loss of brain function and dementia associated with the unintended consequences of PPI. But I remember back when they first came out, there were animal studies showing very strong associations of gastric cancer in beagles, dogs. But in humans, with similar duration of use, they weren't seeing it. What you do see after several years of proton pump inhibitors is you see hypertrophy of the cells, the parietal cells in the stomach that produce gastrin, which stimulates acid. So you're basically, (laughs) the body is fighting back and trying to get the acid back into the stomach. This latest study looked at the UK database, and they look and because those drugs are paid for by the United Kingdom's uh, national health system, they looked at uh, almost 100,000 users of proton pump inhibitors and 200,000 users of H2 blockers, another drug used to treat hyperacidity. Five-year study, adjusted analysis showed that those who were using proton pump inhibitors had a hazard ratio of 1.5 in other words they w- they were significantly more likely to get colon to get stomach cancer in that 5 years now is a, is a 150% a big risk well not that much but you really do not want proton pump inhibitors out there on the open market like we have here where people can just go and keep buying them for decades which is exactly what happens here and I'm sure we're going to see an increase in gastric cancer. In fact, we probably already have. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at, at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.